0: Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Patman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali, and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. This is Jenny McMahon. I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Adelaide. I visit Melbourne very regularly. In fact, I'm originally from Melbourne. And when I'm in Melbourne, I really enjoy listening to 3CR. Also, 30 years ago, I used to actually come on to 3CR as an art reviewer for a Saturday afternoon cultural program. So it's wonderful to know that 3CR is still thriving. And welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today we have someone in the studio, Jenny Munt, who's going to be speaking about why victims don't have a moral obligation to forgive.
1: Forgiveness is the one unpardonable sin. That is by Dorothy Elsayers.
0: So what was it that inspired your interest in this
1: topic? So I have... Pretty long story about why I actually got into forgiveness. Um, so you saw my presentation at the AOP: yep, um, and earlier it was it
0: was fantastic. I was very enthusiastic
1: about it.: Thank you. <laughs> um, so with the presentation, and when I've typically spoken about my work on forgiveness, I've offered a fairly generic introduction to try and provide a context for my work and why I've decided to work on forgiveness. Because forgiveness is a fairly marginal topic in literature, in the philosophical literature. Not many people are writing about it. Not many people are too interested in it in the secular analytic tradition. And it's tended to kind of be relegated within religious philosophical discussions. So I've kind of given this generic opening where I speak about how everyone's forgiven and everyone's familiar or intimately familiar with the idea of forgiveness. But it's a little bit ingenuous when I give that introduction um, it's, not, it's not an entirely accurate representation of why I've decided to work on forgiveness. And the more accurate representation of why I was inspired to work on forgiveness was I came back to university in my early 20s after spending some time away and I'd gotten out of an abusive relationship um, that was basically defined by domestic violence and went through that really difficult experience of getting out of that situation and deciding to return back to university So I went back to uni and I started studying philosophy just out of accident. Um, And I took one subject in my third year, which was about evil. um, And there were a couple of weeks dedicated to forgiveness. And when I was reading some of the papers that we covered on forgiveness, I noticed that there was one thing that really stood out to me. And that was the fact that none of those papers spoke to my experiences as a a victim of abuse. Um, I found that The papers on forgiveness were speaking to the perpetrators themselves, um, or they were trying to speak to the community that has experienced the wrongdoing that's occurred. And I thought that there's something very strange about that, that if we're talking about forgiveness and we're not talking to victims about forgiveness, then we're missing out on something really important about what happens when people do forgive. People forgive when they've been victims. So, I kind of read these papers, and and I noticed that there was one kind of really overwhelming aim of these papers, and it was to convince uh, perpetrators and the community that forgiveness was this fantastic thing, that it had a great value, that it could, uh, that it could help mend the the kind of moral trauma that's been caused by wrongdoing.
0: Yeah, I've heard it sort of, you know, people say, oh, it's part of the healing process. That's why you have to do it
1: yeah yeah so I, I, yeah, I got that sense completely, and it just really made me very angry. I just it just really annoyed me because I thought I'm a victim, and this doesn't resonate with me at all, and not only that, but these people are telling me that I have to forgive in order to be a productive, morally sound person, um, and I really resented that thought, so I thought, maybe I should do some work on forgiveness and do my work on forgiveness as a victim who wants to speak to other victims um, and try and assure myself, I think, that there's ways that I could cope um, or move on productively from my experiences that didn't necessarily entail forgiveness. Um, So yeah, that was my background and how I started working on it.
0: Yeah, I think an interesting point too is is when you mentioned domestic violence. I think a lot of people have an image in their mind of physical violence, but it can also be it can be put downs, it can be a sort of a control sort of element in relationships and I think that a lot of a lot of the time people can actually be in an abusive relationship and not even realize it, can they?
1: I think so. I think some of the most insidious But effective forms of abuse are those that aren't obvious. Those that aren't visible, often to the victim, um, a really good form of control is one where the victim doesn't realise that they're being controlled. That's a really effective form of manipulation. Um, But abuse is also effective when other people don't pick up on it. Um, So, yeah, I think you're right. In those situations, it's those kind of less um, obvious but more pervasive forms of abuse that tend to kind of mark those relationships.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, could you tell us
1: about your paper? Absolutely. Great. So, what I ended up doing, I wrote this paper for my honours honours thesis, um, and I came across a couple of papers that... Um, argued for what I take to be a fairly radical thesis that victims do have a moral obligation to forgive. So I found these couple of papers and I realised that no one was really responding to them, no one was pointing out that they might have inadequacies and I thought, why don't I do it? Um, So today I'll I'll talk about one of those papers. I won't have time to talk about my arguments against both but um, throughout the thesis basically I reject both of the papers and both of the arguments made in the papers and say that essentially that they fail um, to establish that victims do have a moral obligation to forgive. So the paper that I will be talking about today is Lawrence Thomas's 2009 paper, which is titled Evil and Forgiveness, the Possibility of Moral Redemption. And I'm going to offer two arguments in response to, to his account there. So, So as I stated, Thomas advances what I take to be the very strong thesis that victims of wrongdoing can have a moral obligation to forgive those who have wronged them. He claims that it is only under certain circumstances that a victim ought to forgive. He holds that there can only be a moral obligation to forgive when the wrongdoer fulfills a number of conditions necessary necessary to demonstrate that they are what he calls righteously contrite. On this account, a wrongdoer who has demonstrated her repentance can be considered deserving of forgiveness. In these cases, Thomas argues it would be wrongful for a victim to withhold forgiveness. Thomas provides a set of conditions that must be met by a wrongdoer to be considered deserving of forgiveness. First, the wrongdoer must ask for forgiveness from those whom she has wronged. Second, the wrongdoer must acknowledge and assume culpability for the full extent of her wrongdoing. And third, the wrongdoer must demonstrate that she feels genuine remorse and shame for her actions. Finally, Thomas imagines that the wrongdoer must be committed to atoning for her wrongful deeds. According to Thomas, any wrongdoer who satisfies these four conditions can be considered righteously contrite. Thomas argues that victims have a moral obligation to forgive a righteously contrite wrongdoer and a righteously contrite wrongdoer only. He claims that this obligation is grounded in the moral power that a victim holds over a contrite wrongdoer. He argues that the victim's capacity to forgive constitutes a form of approval. This acknowledgment or approval of a wrongdoer's righteous contrition is of significant importance to the wrongdoer. This acknowledgment would constitute the recognition of the significant moral transformation undergone by the wrongdoer. To withhold forgiveness from a repentant wrongdoer would then deprive him of the approval that he desires and deserves. So Thomas argues that failing to forgive such a righteously contrite wrongdoer is morally wrong. According to this view... It is wrong for a victim to withhold forgiveness from a wrongdoer who is what he takes to be unequivocally deserving of forgiveness. Furthermore, Thomas argues that a victim is not permitted to use her moral pain as an excuse to refuse to acknowledge the appropriate moral behaviour of the wrongdoer. Implicit to this account is the view that the status of victimhood does not excuse the victim from engaging in appropriate moral behaviour with regards to a righteously contrite wrongdoer. So Thomas's position is motiva- motivated by the view that forgiveness is primarily rational rather than emotional. Thomas explicitly rejects the view that the forswearing of resentment is a necessary condition of forgiveness. This allows Thomas to avoid the concern that a victim cannot rationally overcome the affective sentiments or emotions that we take to be constitutive of resentment—perhaps anger, contempt, or scorn. Rather, it is both necessary and sufficient for a victim to respond to rational considerations in order to have forgiven. It is compatible on this view for a victim to retain all of the emotions we typically associate with resentment, while holding that he has forgiven the wrongdoer. So, departing from the standard view of forgiveness in the philosophical literature, Thomas defines forgiveness as the acceptance and appreciation of the wrongdoer's righteous contrition. He imagines that this appreciation of the wrongdoer's moral transformation is best expressed through testimony. If a victim has acknowledged that the wrongdoer has become righteously contrite, they are then morally obliged to accurately convey this moral transformation to others. Um, so now I'm going to argue against Thomas and try to claim that withholding forgiveness is not morally wrong. So one of the key assumptions made by Thomas is that there are a number of ways in which a victim may respond to the injury inflicted against them. Some of the responses may be more bl- morally blameworthy than others. This is illustrated by his claim that, quote, there are better and worse ways to react to the moral wrongs that one has suffered. So this supposition grounds his claim that victims may be morally blameworthy if they do not forgive a righteously contrite wrongdoer. For the fake, for the sake of their argumentation I do grant the general thesis that most victims remain morally responsible agents who can treat wrongdoers in morally blameworthy ways. There is an extensive debate in the literature concerning the moral responsibility of victims of egregious harms um, that is sadly beyond the scope of my work. However, there are some fairly uncontroversial cases that illustrate that being a victim does not necessarily absolve one of moral agency and responsibility. For example, consider the following case of a morally responsible agent who is responding in a morally blameworthy way. So in this case, Jessica has adopted a labradoodle puppy called Charlie who continues to run into into her neighbour Sean's front yard and dig up his very much prized vegetable garden. Sean has raised the issue with Jessica but she has refused to construct any proper fencing on her property that would prevent the beautiful labradoodle Charlie from escaping. Sean decides to vandalize Jessica's house and car with graffiti in an act of vengeance. Considering this case suggests that Thomas's more general thesis that victims can act in morally blameworthy ways should, at least for the meantime, be accepted. There are clearly ways that a victim can do wrong by the wrongdoer. In this case, it seems that Sean's decision to vandalize Jessica's property, in response to, to his respo- to, to in response to his request to construct proper fencing is neither appropriate nor is it justified. However, it is my suggestion that it does not follow from this that withholding forgiveness is one such morally inappropriate response. It is my view that there are a number of morally permitted responses to wrongdoing. Of these responses, many do not require forgiveness of the victim, yet are clearly not morally wrong cases of acting in in a malicious or vengeful way.
0: And you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Jenny Munt about why victims don't have a moral obligation to forgive.
1: So the following case I take to be an example of why many Responses to wrongdoing do not require forgiveness, yet are clearly not morally wrong cases of acting in a malicious or vengeful way. So I would like to offer a trigger warning for this case, as there is a brief mention of sexual abuse, um, and I apologise if this causes any distress. So in this case, Janet and Theo were victims of childhood sexual abuse, which has been perpetrated by their uncle. After a number of years have passed, the uncle approaches Janet and Theo, asking for their forgiveness. Both Janet and Theo accept that he is sincerely contrite for his wrongful deeds. Janet considers her uncle's request and has come to the decision that she is willing to offer her forgiveness. Theo also considers his uncle's request and is less certain that offering forgiveness would be appropriate for him. The uncle inquires as to whether Janet and Theo would be willing to attest to the significant moral transformation that he has undergone to their wider family. Janet does testify to her uncle's moral transformation. However, Theo feels uncomfortable with offering his testimony. He instead responds to any inquiries as to his uncle's moral character by stating that he would just prefer not to discuss the issue. According to Thomas, Theo would be failing to uphold his obligation to forgive his righteously contrite uncle. On his account, Theo would be morally wrong to withhold a positive affirmation of his uncle's moral transformation. However, it is clear to me that Theo's actions toward his uncle are not at all malicious nor vengeful. It is important to remember that on Thomas's account, forgiveness does not require the overcoming of resentment and anger. Both Janet and Theo may continue to feel these emotions with regards to the wrongful deeds they've suffered. This means that the only morally relevant difference between Janet and Theo is that Janet is willing to attest to the, to the uncle's moral transformation while Theo decides to withhold his testimony. Now to me, it seems absurd to suppose that Theo is violating an obligation to his uncle in this case. It is patently wrong, in my opinion, to suggest that Theo has done something wrong by saying he would just prefer to not discuss the issue. Thomas's account is clearly inadequate, because it entails that Theo has done something morally wrong. It seems reasonable to conclude that both responses chosen by Janet and Theo are morally acceptable. What the example of Janet and Theo suggests is that there are a number of responses to wrongdoing that do not entail forgiveness, yet are still morally appropriate. The unacceptable implication of Thomas's view is that some of these responses to wrongdoing are not appropriate, or at least less legitimate than forgiveness. This limits the morally permitted options that a victim may take in response to wrongdoing. However, as is exemplified by the case of Janet and Theo, there are a range of responses to wrongdoing that are neither forgiveness nor clearly malicious. In these cases, I suggest that we do not judge the victim to be morally blame- blameworthy. Rather, in the case of Theo, we may even find his ability to respond in any non-malicious way to be expressive of a moral excellence. This claim is a consequence of the fact That responding to wrongdoing is an incredibly complex exercise of moral judgment. The beliefs, attitudes and judgments that motivate a victim's response to wrongdoing are complex and dynamic. They are likely to change over time. As a result of this, what will be a morally appropriate response to wrongdoing will not always be clear. So I'm not trying to suggest here that refusing to forgive a righteously contrite wrongdoer is always morally praiseworthy. However, by arguing that the victim may be morally blameless for refusing forgiveness, I want to suggest that the victim can have sufficient reason to not forgive. Thomas just straight out rejects this. He states that, and I quote, the moral pain of victims cannot be an excuse to not acknowledge and not to accept the morally correct behaviour that has been exhibited by the wrongdoer who has become righteously contrite, quote. However, it does seem to me that the moral pain of the victim is relevant in at least some cases. Let us try to imagine why Theo may be hesitant to testify to his uncle's moral transformation, given that he has recognised that it is sincere. Perhaps Theo has post-traumatic stress disorder and struggles to recount what happened to him as a child. He may be in denial as to the full extent of the abuse and is not yet psychologically ready to confront his memories by giving testimony. Or perhaps offering testimony as to the moral transformation of his uncle reveals his vulnerability as a victim of abuse. It is not uncommon for victims of egregious wrongs to struggle to speak openly about the trauma they experienced. We do take these reasons to be morally relevant to whether the victim should forgive. Moreover, the moral pain experienced by the victim is a relevant consideration if testifying to the wrongdoer's moral transformation only serves to heighten or affirm their pain. Thomas's focus on forgiveness has a consequence of minimising other ways to respond to wrongdoing. His argument constructs a false dichotomy in which resentment or forgiveness are the only two options that are available to victims. This denies the possibility of an alternate space for victims to explore themselves in which neither forgiveness nor ongoing resentment are required. The claim that a victim has an obligation to forgive denies victims' agency in choosing how to respond to the wrongdoing they've experienced. By prescribing forgiveness as the paradigmatic appropriate response to wrongdoing, it counsellor endorse the view that victims do have a moral obligation to forgive at denying victims other, equally legitimate responses to wrongdoing. The claim here is not that forgiveness is not one such legitimate response to wrongdoing, or victims should not choose to forgive if they feel that it is the morally appropriate thing to do. Rather, the claim that I'm trying to make is that the victim should be encouraged to negotiate themselves, Which response to wrongdoing is appropriate, given their own incredibly complex personal circumstances? Thomas's account is unacceptable, as it holds that a victim is morally wrong to not forgive, even if the victim has chosen a different response other than forgiveness. So, now I'd like to move on to my second objection to Thomas's view, um, and I'll be arguing that the victim does not owe the wrongdoer forgiveness. So central to Thomas' argument is the claim that righteously contrite wrongdoers are, quote, unequivocally deserving of forgiveness. As we have seen, Thomas offers an argument that victims have a unique moral power to offer their their acceptance of the wrongdoer's sincere contrition. It is important to note that that Thomas claims that we do not always get to choose when our approval matters to others. This is particularly evident in the case of wrongdoing, as the victim has at no point chosen to be a victim and does not deserve to be allocated that moral power. However, Thomas maintains that it does not follow from this, that the victim is then absolved of her of having her approval valued by the wrongdoer. So, I'm going to grant to Thomas that a righteously contrite wrongdoer has fulfilled the conditions to be required deserving of forgiveness, although I think this is pretty controversial, um, and there's some good ways that we could deny that, but I'm going to grant it nonetheless. The relevant question then becomes does the victim owe it to the wrongdoer to forgive him? Thomas supposes that the victim owes forgiveness first and foremost because it is of such great benefit to the wrongdoer. Let us grant to Thomas that a righteously contrite wrongdoer will significantly benefit from the recognition offered by the victim that the wrongdoer is repentant. The question still arises, is this adequate to motivate the assertion that a victim has an obligation to forgive? While Thomas has offered a Somewhat compelling argument for a victim's forgiveness may be of significant moral importance to the wrongdoer, this is not sufficient itself to grant an obligation. We can imagine and we're familiar with a number of supererogatory acts that have significant moral benefit. For example, few would deny that donating 90% of one's income would be a morally praiseworthy act. However, it's far more controversial to claim that this fact alone is sufficient to motivate the view that it is then morally obligatory to donate 90% of one's income. Thomas's argument is vulnerable to the same objection. This suggests that even if we do accept the argument that a wrongdoer's repentance gives a victim good reason to forgive, it does not follow from this that the victim then owes the wrongdoer forgiveness. This argument might be, may be illustrated by the case of Janet and Theo, Although Janet did decide to testify to her uncle's moral transformation, it does not strike us that she owed this to her uncle. Recall that I have granted that the victim does have a number of responsibilities to the wrongdoer. These responsibilities include not acting maliciously, vindictively or vengefully. However, it does not follow from this that the victim then has the moral responsibility to provide the wrongdoer with something that may be of significant personal importance. In short, it is not the victim's responsibility to assuage the wrongdoer's desire for, for approval. This in part explains the intuition that Theo is morally blameless for withholding his testimony. Finally, I think the case of Janet and Theo brings my motivation to engage uh, with this very niche corner of an already unpopular philosophical literature into slightly clearer relief. I was driven by the more general, general intuition that is perfectly within the reason for a victim to decide not to engage with the person who has wronged them. I was frustrated and angered by the general pressure on victims to feel obliged to engage with the wrongdoer, whether this engagement manifests as the pressure to reconcile with the wrongdoer, forgive the wrongdoer, or even act in a minimally civil way with the wrongdoer for some type of social convenience. It is my view that the victim is entitled to refuse any future interaction with the wrongdoer even if that interaction is understood as a minimal obligation to testify to the wrongdoer's moral transformation. Even so this minimal obligation will become much more demanding of the victim depending on the account of forgiveness that we accept. For example if we take Criswold's Charles Griswold's bilateral account of paradigmatic forgiveness as a co reactionary and reciprocal exchange between the victim and wrongdoer is correct. This obligation to forgive becomes a rich and demanding process of engagement. To be fair, Thomas is silent on this potential feature of his account. However, it does highlight the further epistemic question of whether the victim is even well placed to attest to the wrongdoer's moral transformation if they have had no interaction or engagement with their moral development since the wrongdoer. If Thomas does admit that the victim need not have any interaction with the wrongdoer, it's hard to see how they could possibly know and testify to any type of moral transformation. Perhaps a family member or friend in these cases would be in a much better epistemic standing to the wrongdoer's moral transformation and would be able to attest to that to save the victim from having to do so themselves. So, just to conclude, I've offered two arguments in response to Thomas. First, I granted the general thesis that victims can remain morally responsible agents who can treat wrongdoers in morally blameworthy ways. This may include acting maliciously, vindictively or vengefully. However, it does not follow from this that withholding forgiveness is one such morally blameworthy response. To illustrate this, I offered a case in which the withholding of forgiveness is clearly not morally wrong. An unacceptable implication of Thomas's view is that it is committed to condemning the withholding of forgiveness to be morally wrong in this case. Second, I accepted Thomas's claim that a righteously contrite wrongdoer is deserving of forgiveness. However, I argue that it is not the victim's responsibility to owe the wrongdoer, something that may be of significant moral importance to the wrongdoer. Lastly, I suggested that instead of thinking about what the victim owes the person who has wronged them. Perhaps we should refocus the discussion to consider how the wrongdoer owes the victim the right to refuse any future interaction. Well, thanks
0: very much for coming into the studio today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And I've been speaking to Jenny Munt about why victims don't have a moral obligation to forgive. Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Uncle Schnook and I... Uh... I really like to listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and your AM dial. And that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the show and been given plenty of food for thought. (laughs)